Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, George Miranda, at gmiranda23 on Twitter. Today, we're going to talk about system complexity and the impact that system design has on downtime. Simpler systems have less downtime. And that sounds pretty intuitive when I say it, but for some reason, we don't really seem to optimize for that in the software industry. In other industries, like shipping and logistics, for example, there's a laser focus on simplicity, and the results that they're able to get with that simplicity are pretty amazing. So, for example, Maersk, the world's largest container ship and supply vessel operator in the world, has really ginormous container ships. And their largest container ship only needs a 13-person crew to get that huge ship halfway across the globe reliably. Those ships are enormous, and their internal systems are massive. Those ships make prevalent use of automation, but the underlying systems beneath that automation are a few things. They're simple, they're redundant, and the system internals are easy to understand whenever anything goes wrong. The shipping industry, as well as many other industries, have learned that simpler systems have less downtime. But yet in the software industry, it's a generally accepted truth that complexity only tends to increase over time. Why are we okay with that notion? Like, Why have we not applied some of those same lessons to the software that we create. So on this episode, we're going to discuss how complexity filters into the production software systems that we build and what we can do to maybe apply some of those same lessons on how we deal with increasing complexity a little bit better. Joining me today to discuss this is Austin Parker from Lightstep. Austin, welcome. Glad to have you on the show. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. This is something that's super, super interesting to me. I, I wrote a blog post kind of talking about some of my thoughts on this, on this, the system complexity thing. And I think it's a fascinating, both like philosophical topic, because I think you actually hit on that in the intro, right? That we just take it as normal that our systems are going to increase in complexity as we build them. And it, we don't challenge that assertion a lot, right? We don't step back and say like, well, why, why does it have to be this way? And so I think it's, good to have these sort of conversations and and try to get at that deeper insight into like, well, why do we build things the way we, we build them? Yeah, absolutely. And that blog post is part of the reason that um, we wanted to have you on the show. So before we get started, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, your background so that our listeners know who you are? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a principal developer advocate at Lightstep. I kind of came into the observability space from sort of a more traditional, like DevOpsy sort of background. I used to work for a company called Apprenda, who's no longer with us, but they built this really cool, uh, for the time especially, platform as a service uh, focusing on .NET. So we had actually invented like a way to containerize Windows services uh, before Docker was a household name. Well, some people's households, I guess, but. <laughs> So while I was there, like one of my big responsibilities uh, originally was to sort of implement a lot of DevOps and SRE principles, I guess you would say, around how we were deploying software, how we were making it maintainable and observable before those terms maybe really got big, you know. 
And I wanted to stay kind of in that same role, but I, I really wanted to take a lot of the lessons I had learned about building these distributed systems and you know build tools for it, which led me to Lightstep, and uh, you know here I am now. So what I, I'm also involved a lot in the Open Telemetry Project, which is a um, big open source project. Dozens of companies that are involved in you know building this: um, Lightstep, Microsoft, Google, Honeycomb, to name a few. And the idea with open telemetry is that if you want, if you're building software, you know, modern software, you need to be able to understand what's going on in those systems, in that system, right? And to do that, you need telemetry data. Open telemetry is a API and SDK instead of tools to help you instrument your software for observability and eventually to be kind of an out of the box feature. Awesome. It sounds like you have been steeped in really complex systems and some good solutions around that. Let's try to get started with um, maybe zooming back a little then and talking about sort of the importance of designing simpler systems, especially since we've both kind of have backgrounds in dealing with a lot of complexity. So how do you start thinking about that? How would you frame the problem? This is actually really interesting because I was I was talking to someone just a couple weeks ago, and this was a, a sort of a platform team at a company, and they had run into this problem where, and I feel like this is a very common problem is we have this very, you know, this this large portfolio of services and applications. And there's a mandate that these all need to share some common layer, right? Let's, for the purposes of this, let's say authentication. You know, you want single sign-on. Cool. So how do we solve that problem? Because these are individually, all these are simple applications, right? But now that they've all been sort of combined under this umbrella of this much larger company that wants to use single identity. Now we're starting to add complexity because they're written by different teams with different idioms, different languages, different sort of deployment methodologies. And the role of this platform team is to sort of impose some simplicity onto this complex design that has been foisted on them. And so I'm sitting there and we're kind of whiteboarding, we're brainstorming and coming up with all sorts of very complicated solutions to like, well, how do you, how would you do this? How would you do that? And at some point, someone kind of brought up, it's like, well, let's step back a second. You know, let's look at what is sort of this common inflection, you know, what is something that all these applications are spinning around, right? Like, what is the one thing they have in common? And let's start there. And once we had reframed that discussion into, instead of looking at the differences, looking at the similarities, we were able to kind of make a lot of progress very quickly and say like, oh, okay, well, you should do this, 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 right? And I think that conversation shows a lot of the problems that are inherent in system design, because we tend to, even in a team, you know, where it's like you have, even in like, say, a greenfield situation, right? You're going to have more than one person. And Different people are going to have different ideas. They're going to have different things they prioritize. Uh, they're going to have different things they have expertise on. And we tend to, I believe, go to not the most complicated solution, but we go to a solution that feels sufficiently complex because you never want to feel like it was just the easy thing, right? Right. You feel like, oh, that easy thing, I must be missing something. This is this is too simple to work. But oftentimes, it's not too simple to work. Oftentimes, that simple thing is actually the easiest thing to maintain. Well, you know, that leads me to the intro question that we usually ask most folks on this show. What is a myth about simplicity that you would like to debunk? I think the the biggest myth about simplicity is that 
simple and easy are the same. Interesting. Say more about that. What do you mean? If I say simple, a lot of people will hear easy. And if I say easy, some people will think simple. But it's not actually the case, right? There's a lot of things in life. I mean, think about it this way. We're breathing right now. Breathing sounds very simple, but it's not very easy. If you actually think about like what is happening in your body to make you breathe, it's this incredibly complex series of systems, physical, biological systems that I'm not a doctor or like a biologist, so I don't really understand them, but it's something that is very simple, so simple that we do it from birth. But I think if you talk to someone that was an expert about biology and asked, is breathing easy? They would probably say, well, no, it's it, all these things have to go in a certain order and all these things have to happen. And if something was off, it would not work. You would not be able to breathe. And so you can see that also in, in software design. So sometimes the simplest thing to do is not the easiest thing to do. And sometimes things that appear simple are actually very difficult to implement both behind the scenes and also organizationally, right? So I think it's important to kind of keep that distinction in mind. Like just because simplicity can be hard to actually implement and hard to sort of force through for a lot of reasons. I don't say force through, but it can be hard to convince people about the simple thing because of both technical reasons, like actual technological reasons, but also because of like organizational and human reasons. Yeah, that really makes me think about the things that I consider simple. And I think you're right. I think they're definitely not the same thing. But when it comes to simplicity, I think the the concept of something being simple means that we can look at it and we can really easily reason about what's happening. And so there might be, like in your example, when we breathe, there are so many moving parts, but we sort of take it for granted. We know it's a breath in, a breath out. We know what happens if we don't get it. And we can wrap our mind around what it means without a whole lot of effort. Yeah. Right. And I think that's that's the difference, right? It's really what we can reason about. And that, I think, tends to make all the difference, especially when it comes to maintaining uptime or troubleshooting. Yeah. And, but I think that goes to, like, I wrote about that exact point in my art, you know, in my blog, is that, you know, those things that we can simply reason about tend to hide very complex abstractions. And mm-hmm. it's easy to design for when things go right, but it's hard to design for when things go wrong. Um, I think, like you talked about in the intro, right, these container ships that are running off of tons of automation and are running very lean, a lot had to be sacrificed to make them that simple, right? Or that, uh, I don't know if simple is right, maybe it's like uncomplex. Maybe there is some there you go. level of complex, like there is some way you can reduce complexity to a certain point where you, if you take out everything else that doesn't need to happen, you say, these are the, this is the bare minimum. These are the variables we need to control. And we need to have a way to understand the state of those variables. And we need to have that be presented and managed by humans in a way that doesn't require a lot of excess humans. Then you've reached some sort of like perfect crystalline state. And you can say like, aha, this is a simple system, right? Because we have quantified all the abstractions in a way that they are all manageable. All right. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. Let's let's shift the focus a little bit back to software and sort of I mean, especially because I think because I'm an infrastructure engineer, I tend to think of a lot of the abstractions that we've seen on the infrastructure side these days. And I gotta say, you know, systems just seem to keep getting increasingly complex. Some of it is for the reasons that you described, right? Sometimes we want to build something 
super resilient, right? And and something easy doesn't feel like the right approach. And we, we tend to confuse those things. But regardless of that, it seems like overall, as an industry, with some of the platforms that we build, with some of the new tools that become available, it seems like nothing is really getting any simpler, right? You're right. I think some of the abstractions may be easier to reason about, but the things that are happening beneath the covers are so complex and and they, it seems to just be getting even more complex. So what do we do about that? How do we fight against that inevitable wave of complexity or, or do we even need to? That's a great question. Like some of it's unavoidable, right? I think it's interesting because you see on Twitter these days or you kind of, if you follow a lot of, um, you know, DevOps thought leaders, let's say, but there's the, the sort of the microservices versus monoliths debate has sprung up again. Mm-hmm. Certainly between like when I wrote that, blog and now we've we've seen a lot of discourse around like oh you probably don't actually need microservices and what's interesting is most of those arguments seem to really fall back to a technical perspective right they they seem to be arguing like look there's all these tools and technologies that you can use and yes they're cool but if they're not actually solving you know a problem then why are you using them but I think the kind of antecedent theory is that microservices were never really about like, this is a, technically a better way to design software. I, this was never a technical way to manage complexity. It was always about managing organizational complexity. It was about managing mm. how people build software as humans versus how you write code as a programmer. So one way you sort of manage the complexity of your of the technical side of this argument is that you have to have a deeper understanding of your software and what it's doing. Uh, You have to be able to introspect the behavior of your application at every single point that it's used, right? A friend of mine likes has a metaphor where he talks about if you, you know, as you build software and as you kind of go, you know, you build an application, it's like you built a house, right? There's a lot of different rooms inside that house and people outside of it, you know, maybe they see one or two things, but inside of it, a lot of stuff happens. And as you discover like, oh, this, it breaks in this case, or it's slow in this other case, you start to add windows into that house, but they're extremely small and they're very narrow, right? They're very, you know, I have this one little window, this pinpoint into the kitchen, And I can see what's going on in the kitchen, at least in this one corner of the kitchen, but I can't see the rest of the kitchen. And maybe I decide, oh, the house sometimes is on fire on the inside. So I I put a little probe for the temperature in a room because that's the last place it caught on fire. And I've got a window into that room because that's the last place it caught on fire. I want to make sure it doesn't happen again. But that only tells me what's going on in that one room in this one case, right? I have a temperature probe. I have a window I can tell you how hot the kitchen is, and I can tell you if there's anything visually wrong in there, but I know nothing about the rest of the house, except what I see on the outside. And as you keep doing this, you have, you know, uh, I think a production application, something people have been using for a long time, from the outside eventually has like thousands of windows and tens of thousands of probes. And people are kind of standing on scaffolds and ladders and they're looking on their head and they're looking inside this thing and no one is ever able to actually step back and say, well, this is actually what the house looks like anymore, right? Because we've covered it with so many ways to, to measure it and understand it that we've actually lost sight of what the house even is. I think that's one of the, the differences. But, and if I took that and extended this metaphor even further, you know, those windows are kind of like logs, right? Those are, I see Mm -hmm. what's happening. Those probes are metrics of some sort, right? 
I'm measuring something. And if you look at you know this concept called observability that I brought up before, which is this idea of sort of a holistic view of all this telemetry data, you know, you need to have not just metrics, not just logs, you need to have contextual data, you need to have sort of the ability to trace requests as they flow through the entire house application architecture. And that gives you sort of the context to let you know what window to look at, um, to look through, what probes to measure, right? That idea of creating telemetry, creating an observable structure, that is the way you manage complexity. There's a lot you can do in a design, like in how you're designing the software, but all software will eventually reach this point of like, you could write Kubernetes yourself if you wanted to, and it would be your perfect, beautiful, beautiful vision. But as soon as other people touch it and adding their own stuff, then now you need observability, right? You, you need to be able to have this shared language and logic of performance and a way to understand performance. I want to say the analogy that you use about windows and probes and sort of losing the vision of the uh, the house that you originally built just because there are so many different ways to look at it. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because you present that as, you know, part of the technical argument of what's happening. And I think that, uh, a lot of the problem with complexity is that we're really solving for a people problem that just happens to be implemented with technology, right? Because at the end of the day, these systems end up being monitored and managed by people. So how do we make people better understand all the things that that are happening. And I think you're right. We're we're kind of at a really interesting inflection point where you know, we've we've built systems that require all these different views, require all these probes, all these windows into what's happening, and there's just sort of an overwhelming amount of them. And so we are also now at the point where we're able to crunch enough data to look at all of those mirrors and help us as people better find the signal in the noise, yeah. right? And just help us figure out what is the thing that we really need to look at. Yeah. You know, this is obviously like monitoring in some way, right? Like, and I, you are monitoring some value, you're monitoring some state for a change or uh, for it to cross some threshold. I actually have another thing. I wrote another thing where I, I argue against monitoring as sort of a term, because like you said, you're right. People are sort of at the heart of this. You know, people are the ones that built all those windows and probes. People are the ones that set those alerts. People are the ones that respond to them. So whenever you set on a monitor or when you, whenever you decide, here's something I'm going to get paged on, like that's a value judgment about what's important in your application. And it's sort of a way that you as a human are saying, this is what's normal, right? But you constantly have to be reevaluating that. And I think this is one place that I see people get stuck a lot is we, we like to think that, you know, I can just go in and I can, we like to think of these as sort of day two problems, right? Like how often do people sit down when they, you know, it's like, all right, we're going to go build the next great application, or we're going to go build this new feature, or we're going to build something. And I feel like a lot of time we sit down, we say like, okay, well, we're going to use Kubernetes or we're going to use this cool new technology or library or, or, or product. You know, we're going to do some sort of vision, voice recognition. I don't know. But you also at, those, at that point, you need to be saying like, well, how are we going to understand it? Right. How are we going to adapt to sort of the change uh, that happens? Because maybe we do come out and say like, hey, here's our cool new app. You know, we're going to deploy a new feature into production and we don't think a ton of people use it, but what happens if some people do use it, right? Now I need to, all of those assumptions I made, maybe at the very end, you know, when I 
was doing all the stuff I didn't want to do, like documentation. But <laughs> we make those decisions about normalcy kind of at the end of at the tail end, using what we've known up to that point. But it's not really a formal thing, right? It's not something people are sitting down looking forward to and saying like, oh, I'm going to go write a bunch of logging statements today. Or I'm, I'm going to come up with an omnibus solution for understanding application performance for my new thing. Usually we come to it later. And I think that's that's a thing that needs to change. I think there is some value there when, you know, I mean, nobody wants to sit down and think about writing a bunch of log statements, right? But there is a lot of value there because one of the things that's difficult, especially when you have so many moving pieces to monitor and look at, is to try to understand what the signal that this thing is giving you even means, mm-hmm. right? And I think, you know, to use your analogy, right, we had a fire in a room one time, and so we put a temperature probe in that room. And now, you know, we'll get an alert that tells us, oh, it's 50 degrees Celsius in that room. Was that good? Is that bad? Right. Why did I even care, right? And so I think when it comes to simplicity, one of the things that's really important to keep in mind is to just think about where you're inserting telemetry and how somebody reasons about why it's there and what the signal even means. Yeah, I, I think that's a good, you know, even goes, again, goes back to your original sort of container ship thing. Like, how are they able to make something so complex as moving Hey, how many tons are those boats, right? They're extremely heavy. Right. It's design, right? It's, it's design and it's thinking about these systems in a holistic way. It's thinking like, what are the critical things that people need to know? Because the the most important part of a system isn't necessarily the stuff you plan for, it's the stuff you don't plan for, right? It's, it's the something happened that we didn't expect. How are we able to sort of restore service or get back to normalcy or to a steady state? Um, and you can see this in the design philosophy, I think, of a lot of, uh, I don't know if like durable equipment is the word I want to use, but anecdotes certainly from like the space program, right? Super resilient systems. Yeah, extremely resilient systems tend to have this in common where the information that you need is there and it's presented in sort of a uniform way. A, a good example of this, or a story I love telling about this, is there's a... I was reading a book on human error and and understand the title is called understanding human error. I think the author's name is Sidney Decker. Yep. Sidney Decker. Yes. Okay. So I love one particular anecdote they have, and it's talking about redesign. They were, he was looking at a redesign of like an airplane cockpit and the designers had changed the altimeter or the airspeed indicator, I believe from sort of a dial, you know, where you have, Mm -hmm zero to whatever the max is and then a little needle that moves they change it from that to a tape right so there's a straight line and then the current speed is always in the center and the thesis was like well it's always in the center it'll be easier for people to read right the designers thought this way when someone looks at it they won't have to visually ascertain where the needle is they'll just look at the middle and know that's my current speed what they found was people actually had a harder time understanding like being able to read the airspeed because what pilots had done was what their brains were doing was looking at the relative position of the needle on the dial and then they didn't actually read the number they just saw like oh here's the position of the the needle right and that lets me know what the speed is 
when you're in sort of a high stress, let's say situation, like flying a plane and something goes wrong, anything these people can do to shave off time required to understand the state of their system is critical. And they found that this changed that intuitively, right? Like intuitively, I would say, oh, yeah, no, you read the tape in the middle. Cool. Sure. That actually took cycles away that could be better spent on doing something else. And I think that's the you know, the idea behind this resiliency in systems and resiliency in the way you're designing sort of your your monitoring and observability has to be like find the things that are important. You know, you, you can make some pretty educated guesses beforehand on the stuff that's important, but just make sure that everything that's important is available. Don't try to get too precious, I think, about creating very complicated ways to interpret that data for you. If the information is all there and presented in a uniform way, then that lets people easily understand it and make decisions and try to quickly restore whatever normal is at the moment. You know, that's something we talk about a lot in incident response, which is it's better to be clear than it is to be concise. And it's almost somewhat counterintuitive because you think if I take an acronym like the incident command system, for example, and I say ICS instead of incident command system, which is about three times as long to say, it seems like it's going to shave off some precious time because people will just mm-hmm. understand ICS quickly and understand what that means. But if you have somebody that's unfamiliar to the lingo or doesn't quite you know, understand the context of these things, suddenly you've made it a lot harder for someone to understand what's happening in an effort to you know try to shave off just a little bit of time. And it's the same thing that's happening mm-hmm. in that story, right? We engineered for what we thought was a more concise solution, but it ends up introducing more obscurity than than we intended. Yeah. And I think this echoes back to what I originally, you know, what I said earlier, simplicity is hard. Those are the sort of things, the decisions that you have to kind of sit there and make and reason through to get a simple system. Because I, I think there is a, while simple and easy are connected, I think simple and good kind of are. Yeah. There's a, there's a meme going around where it's, you know, the junior programmer, is like, oh no, you need to do this very complicated algorithm. And then there's the more senior program that's like, aha, nested for loop or nested <laughs> if loop goes burr, right? Dating this episode already. Um, but it's true, right? Like, I think you, one of the things you learn the more time you kind of spend programming computers is knowing when to be clever and complex and, and when things matter and when they don't. Because at the end of the day, I can look at a nested if loop you know, or nested if statements or a nested for loop and say like, oh, okay, I get what this does. Whereas if it's some complicated algorithm, I'm going to have to go crack out Wikipedia or whatever to actually understand what the heck is going on here. So on that note, are there practical tips that you have uh, maybe for our listeners on ways that you can start making choices that really simplify some of the systems that you're dealing with? Yeah, I've got a few. Um, I think the first thing is, is sort of a cultural thing, right? Like I think part of it is you have to incentivize understanding as kind of the, you know, if you, if you like thinking about these as like North stars, then you need to have the ability to understand your systems. as kind of like a North star for, for both you and the people that you're working with, because if you're building systems be they complex or simple or anywhere in between, you have to be able to quantify that simplicity. You have to be able to understand what's actually happening. To that end, you know, I suggest that people look into sort of modern observability frameworks, tools like open telemetry, open tracing, open census to make it easy to get sort of broad-based, uh, sane 
simple traces and metrics out of your application code, out of your service code, right? Because if you want to do anything involving like knowing what's going on with your system, uh, you have to have that. I think a good example of this is people, if you ever go look at like chaos engineering, right? Everyone loves chaos engineering and they love seeing what happens when they turn off for things at random. You need to be able to actually know what happened when you turn something off, right? You need to have that telemetry from your system. So incentivize the adoption of, of, I don't want to say monitoring, but I do want to say like understanding, promote tools, you know, that are sort of open source, open standards, like open telemetry. And the last practical tip is don't be afraid of pushing for simplicity when you can. Because I think there's a bias towards like, hey, we want to use the newest, shiniest thing. We want to we want to throw in Istio or Service Mesh or, or whatever, wherever we can. But sometimes you'll probably, you maybe you'll just be fine with Nginx as a reverse, pro- reverse proxy, right? Like maybe you don't need a fancy algorithm. Maybe you just need a double for loop. I think it can take a lot of courage to sort of push for like, let's do the simpler thing, make it easy to understand, and then be ready to scale than it is to maybe jump into the deep end. Obviously, this depends on a lot of factors. Austin, I think you're trolling me because I have a lot of thoughts about the service mesh and how, <laughs> how we deal with that completely. It might be. But, you never know. <laughs> we can talk about that next time. Exactly. So on that note, it's been, you know, it's been a really good conversation. Um, are there any things that you think our listeners um, should check out as maybe an easy way to start, get started with some telemetry? Yeah, absolutely. If you want to get started with OpenTelemetry, the best place to go is check out the website. It's opentelemetry.io. We launched that um, into beta. So there's a lot of good resources there, a lot of good documentation that sort of explains what all this is and also shows you how to very easily get started integrating it into your software. If you'd like to, and now I'll the, the plug, they do pay me, so I had to shout them out. But my employer, Lightstep, we are an observability platform built for sort of these modern distributed systems, uh, these complex systems, these deep systems, as we call them. So you can actually try us out for free. Um, if you go to lightstep.com forward slash sandbox, then there's sort of a interactive sandbox that you can go in and play around with and actually see what our ideas look like in practice, right? About how to solve problems with your systems using Lightstep. Sweet. Well, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So one last thing before we go, there are a couple of questions that we ask every guest on this show. I'm going to start with the first one, which is, um, what's one thing that you wish you would have known sooner when it comes to running software in production? How to write good logs. (laughs) (laughs) What's the value of writing good logs? So I'll extend this. It's the value of being able to write good sort of instrumentation code and being able to write, this is a thing they don't teach you. This is a thing that I, and I think this is one of the, a, as a bigger picture, like part of the problem with how we mentor junior developers, but there's very rarely, I feel like, that, you know, you, you don't start out by thinking like, Hey, how am I going to actually understand what's going on? Like, what is a logging statement or what does a trace look like that's useful to other people? Or what is a metric that is useful to other people? We, we talk about the how do you do this, but less the why. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a difference between like, here's a logging statement that says something, but it could be better, right? Here's a trace that tells me something happened, but doesn't give me enough information to really figure out the underlying state. So yeah, I think if I had known earlier about how to write good telemetry, 
Yeah. And that would have helped. It goes back to, you know, just making sure that you understand or you can reason about what these alerts that you want to have pop up actually mean and put oh, yeah. in the right direction. Absolutely. That said, I've learned a lot about that since then. So, <laughs> well, lastly, is there anything about running software in production that you're glad that we did not ask you about? Glad you didn't ask me about running production software in Windows because I have locked all those feelings deep, deep away. But let me tell you, that's hilarious. I had every intention of asking you that when we first started because I did not know about your Windows background. But then we got into a really good conversation and I did not think about it at all until now. Yes. The problem actually was not Windows. The problem was when I left Apprenda or when I was leaving Apprenda, like I swore to myself, next place I work, it'll all be one or the other. It's going to either going to be all Windows or it's going to be all Linux. No mixing of the two, because the problem we had, one of our one of my biggest challenges, one of the things that dogged me the last day I was there was we had our, our platform could have both Windows hosts and Linux hosts for um, applications. So, however, the software was the sort of the control plane ran on Windows hosts with Linux hosts as being sort of workers. But because of that, it had to be installed from the Windows host, which means you needed wow. to coordinate sort of deployments between Windows and Linux. And this was long before Microsoft had decided to heart Linux. <laughs> and I was having to do so many just awful hacky things with like third-party SSH and FTP and every sort of protocol you can imagine to automate all this stuff. And there was no good answer. So, yeah, I will say I think it's gotten better since then. Austin, it sounds like we could do a whole complexity episode just on that right there. We could do a whole complexity episode on Windows and Linux. Uh, but thankfully, everyone's just even Microsoft has decided to just use Linux now. So <laughs> problem solved. And on that note, Austin, I want to thank you for being on the show. Um, it's a really great insight into um, how we reason about complex systems. So thanks again for agreeing to be on. We'll put a link to your blog in the show notes. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I hopefully, uh, yeah, I'll get back on here and talk, talk at y'all again soon. All right. Well, thank you very much. And signing off, this is George Miranda wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. That's at pageittothelimit. Let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days. <laughs>